Welcome to the Vet Coach Transition Tips Podcast, where you get real and practical advice on how to go from wearing boots to wearing a suit. We've got you covered on advice from writing resumes to killing it in an interview. Be sure to check out this podcast and more at transitionvetcoach.com. And now your host, former Navy Lieutenant Pat Bergstresser. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Vet Coach Transition Tips Podcast. This is your host, Pat Bergstresser, thanks so much for joining us this time around. If you've been listening along, we are working through the interview series, and today we're going to talk about location and compensation and how to navigate that part of the interview process when you're interviewing for a particular role. If you're new to the podcast, this is a podcast dedicated to transitioning veterans and providing them actionable advice to, as to how to go about the transition. And as I introduce myself, my name is Pat Bergstress, our former Navy lieutenant, been through the process myself, been out about three years now, uh, had uh, multiple jobs at this point, and just providing a lot of the things I've learned going through the process myself and also interviewing veterans who are going through the process currently or uh, who have already been through the process and trying to provide sort of a podcast version of like an SOP, basically. Like, what are the basic things you need to know? Whenever anybody goes through this process, their transition is going to be different than anyone else's. But there's kind of some basics, you know, just having some context as to like what to expect, what are the basics, what are the the bottom line things I need to know, and then I'll figure out the details as I go along. That's the point of this podcast. Like I said, we're in the interview series right now. We did a whole series on the resume. So if you haven't heard those and you're looking, uh, trying to figure out how to write a resume for the first time, like so many of us are, uh, then you know, check out that series. Right now we're on the interview series where we're talking about how to approach your interview, how to prepare, um, and how to look at it as someone who's coming from a military environment and now going into this private industry, corporate America type environment and trying to figure out how to translate your experience and how to not be shy about the fact that you're a veteran, but also show these employers that you're ready to get out and, and be a contributor in a non-military environment. And how do you go about that process? Like I mentioned, today we're talking about location and compensation. So location will be a little bit brief, but I think it's worth mentioning because I see a lot of veterans make this mistake. I made it myself, and then we'll jump into compensation. So with location specifically, the one thing that I just want to note here is like for the first time in your life, you know, if you, most people go into the military right after high school or right after college, not everybody, but most people. And so now you're finally in this situation, whether it's four years later, eight years, 10 years, 20 years, whatever, you finally get to decide where you want to live. And this is not always an easy decision. And it doesn't always come off as that clear cut of a decision because a lot of veterans have this mindset of, well, I got to make sure I go where the job is and I got to make sure I'm in the right spot for the job. Um, But to be honest with you, that's not as big of a concern as you might think. There are some veterans who are smart about it, smarter than I was, and realize that, hey, if you live near a major metropolitan city, you're probably going to be just fine. I didn't believe that, or I didn't I didn't understand that, I, wish, I should say, uh, because I was talking to military headhunters. And some of you uh, who are getting out may already be talking to these, these folks, um, and I could do a, a multiple episodes about my opinion on them. But what I will say about them is they are always going to tell you that location, that you should sacrifice on location and focus on quote unquote growth opportunities. And I'll get to what that means in a minute. But they're going to tell you to sacrifice on location as if you have to go to some random town to get this one job that they're selling to you because the job is so much important than the location. But in reality, what you need to do is self-reflect and figure out what's important to you. Like if you're really hyper career focused and you really don't give a crap about where you live, then yeah, that path might work for you. But more often than not, a lot of veterans 
and, and I don't want to say more often than not, but a lot of times, and I'm this situation and I have other friends who have found themselves in this situation, they end up taking this job to go work at some growth opportunity at some company. And then they realize after being there for a while that, hey, I would rather, I actually have the chance to live near my family for the first time in my life, or I have the choice to go live in this city that I've always wanted to go live in, or maybe this part of the world that I've always wanted to go live in. I get to choose, like, fuck this job, I'm going to go live where I want. And I, I would encourage everybody who's getting out to, and who's listening to really think about that. Because be, to be honest with you, you don't have to sacrifice on location to uh, go for some growth opportunity. The whole growth, what I mean by growth opportunity is these recruiters will sell you on growth opportunities primarily because they have to place people and they have to place people in locations that are generally not desirable because these companies need somebody to find them people to fill. Like, think about it, right? Apple computers, Google, Facebook, these Honeywell, like these massive companies, they don't have a hard time finding people because they have entire HR divisions dedicated to it. And most of the time, they have offices in major metro cities. They put their offices where people want to be. People want to live in New York City. People want to live in Miami and Atlanta and all these major cities. That's where people are. And so the companies put their offices there. Well, there are some companies who live in the middle of nowhere, uh, like Nucor Steel is like a really, really great company, highly regarded as a, as one of the top companies like in the country to work for. But if you look at where the Nucor Steel plants are, they are in bumfuck nowheresville. Like literally every single one, the only one they have a, uh, that's in a good location is in Charleston, South Carolina. And if you're wondering where it's right outside Charleston, but if you're wondering why I'm mentioning Nucor, because Nucor recruits a lot of military veterans and it is a really great company to work for, but you basically have to realize that their corporate headquarters are in Charlotte and you're probably never going to be there unless you've been there for 20, 30 years and you're an executive or you happen to get the, the Charleston plant, which basically everybody wants and it's very hard to get. And so if you're interviewing with Nucor, like they pay well, it's a great culture, but you're going to live in the middle of nowhere for a long time. And now, you know, if you were in the army, like the army has not a lot of great locations, uh, Navy and Air Force have better locations, but even Navy and Air Force don't have great ones. Marine Corps actually has some pretty good ones, but regardless, finally, you get the chance to pick where you want to be. And if you go through these headhunters, they're going to tell you that you got to sacrifice on location and go for the growth opportunities. And it's because these companies have jobs in crappy locations and they need someone to fill them. Now I will say the headhunters do, uh, depending on which ones you use. And when I say headhunters, I'm talking about Bradley Morris, Orion, Alliance Careers, Cameron Brooks, like there's so many out there. They, like if you think about it from their perspective, they, they get hired by these companies to find people because they can't find them themselves because nobody wants to live in the middle of nowhere. And for some people, that's great. Some people want to you know, live in the country and live in a small town, or maybe they're even from that small town. And that's great if that's what you want. But most people, that's not what they want. They don't want to live in these small towns where they don't know anybody and they're not near anything and there's no conveniences that they're used to. Um, and so most people, that's not what they want. And so the recruiters in the, or the, the headhunters do this kind of game with you where they tell you, they basically tell you, Hey, you got to sacrifice. And you kind of believe them because they work in private industry and you kind of just believe what they say. And that's what I did. Not everybody falls for it and good for those who don't, but I fell for it. And so what you end up realizing, what you end up thinking is you have to go for these growth opportunities. And what they do tell you 
what they do to their credit is they find companies that supposedly are doing well, whether they're private or public industry, they find companies that are doing well, like Nucor uh, is a doing very, very well. It's a good company to work for, but it's not the only good one. And there's plenty of other ones that don't use headhunting agencies and are really great companies to work for. So you got to keep that in mind and keep that in perspective. And the last thing I'll say on growth opportunities is the, the way they sell it to you is that these companies basically have like a fast track to executive uh, roles or leadership roles. And they basically tell you that like the baby boomers are all retiring. And so these companies are looking for their next wave of leadership. And so they want to bring people in young, groom them for leadership and move them up the chain fast. And to a degree, that's true. But what that means is sacrificing on location for a long time, because you're never going to be in a location you want to be in. It's not guaranteed either, right? And that's like, that's really the key here. Whether you go work for Bank of America, you know, I think it's like a 200,000 person company or Accenture consulting 400,000 people, whether you go work for a big, big company like that, where it may take a long time to climb the chain, or you go work for a manufacturing company that's a little, you know, smaller than that, maybe 10,000 people and has a couple different plants, like you have to perform to promote whether you're part of a growth program or not, you still have to be good. Like they're, they, they kind of sell it to you like, oh, you get in this program and you're set your whole career there and you're going to do great things. You still have to crush it. Like, it's not like they roll out the red carpet for you and you just walk in and you just walk right into management. So whether you go work for a company that's through, that doesn't have a program like that and you just come in as a regular employee. How do you get promoted? You crush it. If you come into a growth program or growth opportunity and and you are trying to get promoted out of that program into a regular role and then climb the chain, what do you have to do? You have to crush it. You have to crush it either way. And in some companies, there is a little bit of politics towards those development programs, and that can help. Like, you know, when I got out, I worked for this manufacturing company. And in order to be senior leadership in the company, you had to have your Six Sigma Black Belt certification because they work in manufacturing. That's a common certification that manufacturing that the manufacturing industry subscribes to because it has to do with process improvement and reducing waste and, and stuff like that, which is very applicable in that industry. But in order to be senior leadership at this company, you had to have that certification. And the only way to get that certification through the company was to come up through the Six Sigma Black Belt program. So you come in as a former military you know, veteran or usually junior officers, you come in you get your black belt certification, you work on projects for two, three years, and then you promote into, you know, some sort of production role as like a line manager, and then you kind of climb the chain from there. And the only way to get to those senior roles like plant manager or senior corporate positions is to have been a black belt. And so there was a little bit of politics there. But guess what? There were also people senior in the company who were not black belts because they just crushed it. And, you know, and not every company is that political either. A lot of companies have this development program, but they're not going to, you know, if they think about it, like think about it from their perspective, you got some guy, a senior corporate role, and he's looking at these two people to promote, you know, one came through the development program and one didn't. The one that came through the development program is like, okay, but the one who didn't is like crushing it. They're going to pick the person that's crushing it. Like why would, why wouldn't they? Right. So these programs are designed to recruit the types of people that would end up doing well. So they have this development program as a way to sell you on coming to the company. So it's not that you, by you being in the program, you're set. It's, they use that as a way to recruit top tier people. So you have to crush it. My whole point here is don't fall for the growth opportunity thing. You have to crush it regardless of where you go. And sometimes those programs can have some political benefits within the company. But in general, it's, in my opinion, it's really not what it is said to be or, or, or sold to be. You still have to perform. And so at the end of the day, if you look at it from that lens, 
you know, it's really, it's really more of a preference. Do you, do you want to go into a company with a little bit of political benefit, but live in locations that you may not want to? Or do you want to go to uh, a company, be a regular employee there, but just know that you're going to crush it and, and trust in yourself rather than some program that may or may not turn out to be what it was sold to be originally. So, you know, I'll, I'll kind of leave it on the growth opportunity rant there for now, because you can probably tell by listening that I have some particular feelings about it. And maybe I'll do some more podcasts about that, because I know a lot of junior officers in particular use these programs when they're getting out. And some people like them, some people don't. And I can give you more of my opinion on those later and talk about that in more detail. Um, the last thing I'll say on location is, you know, when you're looking, if you know, I, I think I mentioned earlier, like major metropolitan cities, if you're getting out and you're looking at major metropolitan cities as sort of your options, I don't think you can go wrong there. Pretty much a, every major metro city is going to have a, a slew of opportunities and, and, you know, if you're looking, you know, maybe you're from like a small town in Georgia you know, if you look at Atlanta, maybe that gets you an hour or two from home, but you're also near a major, you know, you work right outside of Atlanta or you live right outside of, uh, outside of Atlanta. There's plenty of opportunity there. And that goes the same for any major city. And by major metro, I don't mean like LA and New York. I mean, any, any major city like Detroit, Minneapolis, Denver, St. Louis, DC, you know, Charlotte, like there's a ton of them. So, and, and if you aren't from a major metro city and you really want to go back home, that's fine. Like you got to do what's best for you, but just realize that the opportunities may not be as plentiful. They may not have the industries that you're interested in and they probably aren't going to pay as well. Uh, but if that's okay with you, then that's what's best for you and you should do what's best for you. But I think it's just good to realize that, Hey, when you're getting out, you don't have to sacrifice hundred percent on location. You can focus on the major cities and still find a really good opportunity. When you're looking at these cities, this may be common sense for most of you, but I'll say it for the point of saying it, every city has a little bit of a bend to it, right? So if you're looking at working in the defense industry, a lot of veterans do that when they get out contracting, whatnot, DC, right? Like no brainer. You want to work in DC. That's where most opportunities are. If you want to work in tech, San Francisco, obviously, you know, that's like the, you know, Silicon Valley. That's kind of the major tech hub. If you want to work in financial services, New York city, Charlotte, North Carolina, those are kind of the two big areas for that. But having said that, for example, with tech, there's tech all over the place, Austin, Texas, Denver, Seattle, uh, you know, Charlotte, like there's, there's in New York City, Boston, there's tech all over the place, financial services, there's financial services all the place, like a lot of banks have headquarters in random places you wouldn't imagine, like there's a lot of banking in Des Moines, Iowa, in Minneapolis, uh, uh, Minnesota and in Delaware. Um, and, you know, every major city is going to have some sort of banking focus there. But New York and Charlotte are the big ones. So whenever you're looking at cities, you know, just realize that like, yeah, there's ones that are better for services than others. But in general, no matter what city you're going to you go to, you're going to have opportunities. And keep in mind, too, that once you get out, you can change jobs, you can change industries, you can move, you can do whatever you want. And so it's not the end of the world if you don't make the perfect decision. Uh, but just realize that, regardless of what's what location you go to you're gonna as long as it's near a major city you're gonna have plenty of opportunities and so the last thing i want to talk about and i'll use this to transition into compensation which is the second topic for this episode is bah so for the first time in your career you're not going to have a housing allowance and it's kind of common sense. You know that private industry doesn't do housing allowances. Oh, that's kind of a uniquely military thing. But there's two aspects of it that I didn't, like I knew, but I consciously knew, but I didn't really fully understand was the fact that BAH is not taxed. So when you get paid 
your BAH, you get exactly what your BAH is. It doesn't get taxed. And so that really changes the dynamic of your overall pay because you're probably used to looking at your pay as your base salary, like your, let's say you're an O1, whatever the O1 salary is, plus your BAH. And when you actually look at how that's taxed, your base salary gets taxed, but your BAH and your BAS don't. And whenever I moved, I always said, hey, I want to add a, I want to be able to cover my rent and all my utilities within my BAH. And then everything else, you know, then my base salary I can use on whatever else. That was always my goal. And I think that's a goal for a lot of people. Um, but now that's not the case. And so you really have to f- really focus on what is my monthly payment going to be for rent or mortgage and how does that factor into my base salary? And that base salary really is going to have to be bigger than what your salary was on active duty. And not only does it need to be bigger, but you need to factor into, into that, that, you know, how you calculated your full salary in the military, you have to calculate it differently because that BAH wasn't taxed. And that's a significant Difference. I mean, it could be 20, 30%, maybe even more different uh, on that BAH because of, of whatever tax bracket you're in. So that's something that, you know, not to gloss over, really need to focus on and really need to think about. Because while I didn't put myself in a bad situation, um, I definitely, when I started to kind of feel that paycheck coming home, it definitely was different than kind of what I. I guess, emotionally expected. Like the math made sense, but it was just different than what I thought. And a lot of people, when they get out, they take a pay cut because of of all those factors that you're just not used to considering. Um, And so it's definitely worth something, uh, it's definitely something to think about. And so having gone gone into BAH, I'll use that as a way to transition into compensation, which is, you know, probably one of the biggest black holes for military veterans getting out is like, how does this whole compensation thing work? I'm not going to claim to have all the answers here, but I've been through it myself a couple times, and I'll share what I've learned and what I've seen work for other people and what I've picked up along the way. So the first thing with compensation is you're going to hear this term a lot called total comp. Total comp stands for total compensation, obviously. But what's important to understand with total comp is what does it actually factor in? Whenever you know you see a salary listed for a role that's being you know, sold or publicized by a recruiter or headhunter, it generally is base play, base pay plus bonus. And it assumes that you get the full bonus. Uh, and if there is some sort of standard with a signing bonus, it assumes you get that. And so they're going to refer the, the, the number that you see is always going to be the total compensation uh, pay. It's not just the base salary. So you need to understand that because if you do have a bonus, a performance-based bonus, you're not necessarily going to always get a performance bonus, especially your first year. Usually you're learning on the job. You may not get it. Maybe you do and you crush it, but it's not guaranteed, right? But the way they sell the, the this pay that these recruiters, the way they sell it is this, hey, you're going to get the full base, plus they're going to assume that you get the full bonus. And that's just not always the case. Sometimes you don't get your bonus because the company didn't do that well. Sometimes you're new to the company and you're just learning. Maybe you go to a company and it's hyper-competitive and everybody's a rock star and it's really hard to get your bonus. Whatever the case is, you don't ever want to walk into a role assuming you're going to get that bonus, especially your first year. And so you just want to understand that as you're looking at these numbers. Typically, uh, and so total compensation is your base salary plus performance bonuses, like maxed out performance bonuses. And then 
there's usually signing bonuses aren't incorporated into that number. Signing bonuses are something that you negotiate on in an, on an individual basis, but sometimes that's factored in there as well. And so when you're looking at, you know, one locate, one thing that you want to do when you're looking at jobs outside the military is you want to look at glassdoor.com um, is probably my number one recommendation to kind of figure out what kind of pay you should expect. You're going to see a wide variety of pay, wide pay ranges on that website because it's crowdsourced. So anybody can go in there and put whatever they want. But, and so because of that, you'll see some really stupid things. Like for example, at Capital One, vice president and above uh, are executives. And so they make several hundred thousand dollars. But I saw in Glassdoor, the pay range for vice president, I think is like 90,000 to, you know, several hundred thousand. There is no vice president at Capital One making 90,000. Like I guarantee you that. And so you see stupid stuff like like that. Uh, but in general, you, you can use the average as, as, as a good understanding. And most salaries on Glassdoor and, uh, are usually kind of the middle of the pack sort of type jobs. So most likely the types of jobs you would walk into coming out of the military. There's, you know, there's, a, uh, there's a decent amount of entry level jobs cause you know, people are coming out of college and they're, they're pretty well versed on the internet given their age. And so they, you know, they go get their first job and they put it on Glassdoor and then you'll see a lot of the middle of the pack, like people like 25 to 35, kind of the jobs they're going into. You'll see a lot of those. That's probably like the most amount of information you'll see is on those jobs. Once you get to the higher levels, it's just not there as much because people are older and they're just not interested in contributing to Glassdoor, probably because they're making more money at that point. They just doesn't really matter. Um, but Glassdoor is a great resource for that. It's also a great resource to research companies. So if you're interested in what people have to say about companies, again, it's crowdsourced to so take that with a grain of salt. Not every review is fair or unbiased. Maybe somebody got fired and they went on there and they complained. You know, my last company is on there and there's this one review that, you know, I was a Six Sigma black belt there and this one former Six Sigma black belt wrote a really scathing review on there. And it's pretty funny to read. Um, so sometimes you'll see stuff like that on Glassdoor. But at the, at the, at the end of the day, it gives you a general idea of what are people's perceptions of this company from people who have worked there. But, you know, I, I, would, I wouldn't pay too much attention to like the stars, like one to five stars. I'd pay more attention to like what are people saying and you can read those reviews, you know, that are legit ones versus ones uh, where people are just complaining. But it's interesting just to see what people have to say, you know, who presumably have actually worked there. The other website that I would recommend is PESA.com. PESA, P-Y-S-A.com. It's not perfect for all industries, but tech and financial services, it seems to have a good amount of information. That I've seen way more accurate than Glassdoor. And the numbers in there are much more accurate. So I think PESA recently got bought by some other company, but the website still works. So you just go in there, you type in the title of the job that you're interviewing for, and generally they're pretty consistent. And, and as long as you put the company and the title, it generally gets you within a pretty good range. And that site does say like on the chart where it's showing you the average pay, it does say total compensation. And so that's, you know, that's salary plus bonuses. Um, and so something to consider again, just keeping that in mind as you're looking at all of this, these numbers you see include a full bonus, which you may not always get, especially not your first year. The best way though, to really understand what pay is going to be like is on the inside. Talk to people on the inside. You know, one of the things I've talked about through a lot of these episodes of this podcast is networking through LinkedIn, and I'll do a series on that in the future. But you know, if you're met, if you're you're finding veterans on LinkedIn and messaging them and, and having conversations with them, or maybe you know people who already got out and are working at the company that you're interested in, or they're a friend of a friend or whatever, like just ask them. Like if they're in the exact same role you're interviewing for, maybe that's a little awkward. But if they're a higher a step above 
or maybe they know somebody else in the company that would be willing to talk to you about that, that's totally re- a totally reasonable ask. And it's a totally normal conversation in the private industry. Like, don't be weirded out when you're talking about pay when you're getting out. You shouldn't talk about it at work. Like, in the military, people, I think, were a little too open about talking about pay, but then again, we knew what everybody was making. But when you're on the private industry, you'd be surprised. Like, a person sitting right next to you doing the exact same job might make 30, 40K more than you or less than you, depending on their experience and what they negotiated and whatnot. So, you know, there's, there, and, and the reason that that is uh, a possibility is because these pay ranges for these jobs vary tremendously. Like, my pay range for the job I'm in, I think, ranges like almost $100,000, like a huge scale. And that's because you get people coming in with very varying levels of experience. You have some people who stay in the same job for 10 years, and so each year they get maybe another 5%. And so over time, they're way up there at the top end of the scale because they've been in the same job forever. Whereas you come in, you're going to be you know, probably to the bottom or maybe lower mid part of that scale. But so that's something to consider is that these pay ranges vary widely. And so when you're talking to these people, you know, obviously they're going to know that you're not coming in having worked in it that industry for like 10 years or anything like that. So they can give you a reasonable expectation of kind of what to expect, especially if they're higher levels, because the people who are higher up have more people working for them. And if somebody's working for someone else, they know what they make. So, uh, or they have a pretty good idea. So that's what I would recommend is trying to get a hold of people on the inside who can, who can really give you the real deal, uh, ground level truth. The next topic is medical coverage. We all come from TRICARE, which you, you know you may have realized it, you may not have, but TRICARE is like, despite all the issues you may have had at you know, going to the military hospitals and whatnot, there's nothing better than TRICARE. I mean, I never took, I never pulled my wallet out of my pocket at a hospital, you know, for literally my entire life, right? Because my parents were military and so they're on TRICARE for life at this point. And so I was on TRICARE growing up. I went to the academy TRICARE and then, you know, now uh, then active duty TRICARE and now I'm out. But there's nothing like it. Like I never had to take my wallet out. When you get out, you're going to have to take your wallet out of your pocket at a minimum to get your... Uh, you know, your, your insurance card, but generally there's copays involved. They're usually small, but you're going to have to start paying. The one thing, and I, I'm not a, a healthcare expert by any stretch, uh, so I won't sit here and, and pretend to be, but there's, there's, you know, one thing that I think, you know, you want to focus on when you're looking at the healthcare policies. And a lot of times these healthcare policies are available online if they're public companies or they're big companies like Capital One, you can Google, Capital One like benefits and there's a like a 80 page PDF online that explains all the medical co- medical coverage that Capital One has. So like feel free to Google that if you're interested. But a lot of these companies just put it out there because it's going to get out there. Capital One has 50,000 employees. It's probably going to get out there this massive PDF that explains everything and there's really no secrets like why not to, why not allow people to look it up. But a lot of these companies you can you can research it just by googling. So see what you can find by googling. Um, but generally what you want to look for is the deductible. Um, so the deductible is basically the amount that you have to pay before the company starts covering everything in full. And generally when you're paying up to the deductible, you're not paying necessarily the full amount. It depends on a variety of different things, but you might only be paying 20% of the cost. Let's say you get a procedure, it's $1,000, you only pay $200, um, but that $200 goes towards your $5,000 deductible. And then once you hit the $5,000 deductible, you're not paying out of pocket anymore. Or if you're in some serious car crash and you know it's tens of thousands of dollars, you, know, you pay up to your deductible based on however that's calculated, and then everything after that is covered. That's kind of generally how things work, but uh, you know, every policy is different. I, I can't speak for every situation out there, but that's generally uh, how it works. 
bigger companies will generally have some sort of tiered option for you where you look at your and and with coverage like in private industry you're also paying monthly so so a certain amount of your paycheck will be taken to cover your the plan that you pick and then the deductible you pay out of pocket like literally like out of your take home pay you know out of your salary whatever you're you know you're direct depositing or or receiving as your pay a lot of bigger companies will have like tiered options. Capital One has this, Bank of America has this, a lot of companies do if they're bigger, and they have sort of a tiered option. So tiered options means you get a little bit of say as to what your deductible is, but it but it's balanced by how much you pay per month. So typically like the lowest tier will be, you know, you pay maybe 100 bucks a month or 200 bucks a month, but your deductible is high. And then the next tier up, you pay maybe another one or $200 a month, but your deductible is a little bit lower. And then the third tier you pay, you know, the most you could pay per month, but your deductible is the lowest. And so it really depends on how often do you go to the hospital? If you're a single guy or girl getting out and you're pretty healthy, which most veterans are, you may not need the tier one or the tier three, you know, on day one. Um, maybe over time you'll end up on the tier three because it works best for you, but maybe not. And then as, you know, as you get older, as you get married and have kids and whatever you choose to do, uh, maybe you start developing some health issues. You might move up to the tier three because it makes more sense for you to pay more out of pocket so that you reach your deductible quicker. Um, and so, you know, that's something that, you know, is really a personal decision, but that's how a lot of companies do it to give their employees a little bit of flexibility as to pick what's best for them. At Capital One, a lot of people will switch. Like when they know they're going to have a baby, they'll go ahead and switch to the next tier up or maybe two tiers up. Like me and my wife are on tier one. We're healthy. We don't have any problems. Like we go to the hospital very rarely. Uh, but people who are having kids, you know, as soon as they decide they're going to have kids, they go ahead and bump themselves up one or two tiers during the enrollment season, which is every November. Again, something else that's weird. You can't enroll in healthcare in private industry uh, without a major life event, which means, you know, you have a kid. You change jobs, something like that. I think there's a few other qualifiers, but you can look it up. It's like I think the term is like major life event or something like that. Um, so you can only enroll, you, you can only make changes to your healthcare plan or enroll in a healthcare plan every November, uh, or if you're entering a job. So if you get a job, if you're getting out of the military and you get a job in like April, then you know you can enroll in April because that's a major life event. Um, one other, one other thing to consider while I'm thinking about it, and I didn't have notes on this, but this is something I realized is whenever you whenever you join a company, a lot of times you don't necessarily get healthcare coverage on day one, and this is a really good reason to try to start your new job while you're on terminal leave, and so you still have that Tricare coverage. So when I started at my first job, when I got out, um, it took about 45 days before their policy actually took effect, which I think is a really shitty thing to do, and some companies do that. Capital One. I I had coverage the day I started. Even though I didn't finish the paperwork until I had been there a couple weeks, I had coverage the first day. And so if I had gone to the hospital, nothing would have been registered, but I would just would have collected the bills and everything. And then everything would have been retroactively taken care of if there had been an incident. So you're covered from the first day at Capital One. A lot of other companies do that, but some, there are definitely a fair amount that don't. And it takes you anywhere from maybe the, maybe you don't get, maybe you start on August 15th and your coverage starts September 1st. Um, you know, when I, when I got out, I started in early August. My terminal leave ended 15 September, but the healthcare policy of the company that I was working for didn't start till 1 October. So there's a 15-day gap. And then you can't get like 15 days of medical coverage. So my wife and I had to go get like a catastrophic 
plan, which is basically they only cover catastrophic things. And we had to get it to cover the month of September to cover that last two weeks of September until October. A lot of people would probably just take the gap and not be worried about it. But, you know, my wife wanted to make sure we had coverage. So we we covered ourselves and we had to pay for that out of pocket. So that's something to consider, you know, a question to ask when you're interviewing with these companies and you get to the, you know, the negotiation stages, hey, when does your healthcare policy start? you know, for new employees. And, you know, if you're getting into the negotiation phase, that's something that you might be able to negotiate depends on the company. Um, but just realize there may be some sort of gap in coverage as you're coming off TRICARE and going into the private industry. But again, the three tier thing is is kind of generally what's out there. And you want to focus on the deductible, like high deductible plans are not generally great. Um, but if you're a young, healthy person, and you're single it might work for you, but something to keep in mind as you're going through the process. Next thing is 401k. So this is, you can kind of think of it, it's a, it's a retirement uh, account, and it's similar to your thrift savings plan or your TSP. Um, typically, what you're looking for is what do they match? By matching, it's usually a low percentage number. So 3 5 6%, usually it's somewhere in there. 5%, I think, is the most average. This is really actually kind of similar to what the blended retirement system is. Some of you may be familiar. That's something that's starting to roll out in the military so they can, they can, get, they can get away from these pension plans that are costing the federal government you know, literally billions and billions of dollars. They're trying to uh, save money and, and get away from that. And so they created this blended retirement system, which uh, has sort of a similar concept where you contribute to your retirement and the military matches it. I don't know all the details, but um, but it's similar to that. When we say matching, you know, the matching thing I didn't fully understand until I got out. And this is what it basically means. Let's say you make $100,000 a year uh, for simple math purposes. And let's say your company matches 5%. That means you have to contribute to your 401k for them to contribute. Uh, so if you contribute 5% of your pay, which would be $5,000 a year, and it just comes out of every paycheck, it's automatically calculated, that never goes into your pay, and it goes into basically an investment account. And then the investments are set based on your risk tolerance, and they'll have a, an investment company that like handles all of that for you, and you can work with them to set up what, what, you, know, what you want your investments to be, whether conservative or aggressive, whatever. And then the company will match whatever you put in up to 5% in this example. So if you put in 5,000 a year, they will put in 5,000 a year. And then there's actually limits similar to the IRA. There's a limit to how much you can contribute per year. I think I think 401k is like 20,000, 21,000 something like that. So it's it's pretty high. You can contribute a lot of money per year. Um, but it's easier to contribute a lot more because it's pre-tax. So you're contributing money that hasn't even been taxed yet and the company is doing, you know, they're matching that amount. So typically, you know, if you think, you know, if you get taxed 30, 40%, um, and then typically put it into your Roth IRA, in this case, you're putting money into an account and it hasn't even been taxed yet. On the flip side, that money will get taxed when you pull it out when you retire. Um, but just something to consider, you know, it's easier to get these higher numbers because that money isn't being taxed. And generally it's free money from the company. So you should take advantage of it unless you, for some reason you seriously can't, uh, but you should definitely be Focusing on retirement, just like you probably heard a lot in the military, contribute to your TSP and whatnot, definitely sign up for your 401k wherever you get started. And something to look for. You know, the first company I worked for, you had to contribute 4% of your pay to your 401k, and they would give you $500 a year. That was it. And that's like, it's free $500, but like in the grand scheme of things, that's really shitty. Capital One uh, has kind of a unique thing, and some other companies do this, so something to look out for is a really good benefit. Capital One gives every employee free 3%. Like just by being an associate, you get a 401k account opened and they contribute 3% of your salary for you to it. 
just by being an employee. So Capital One has a really great matching program. I won't go into all the details, but generally that's what you want to look for is like 5% matching somewhere around there. um, And that's generally how it works. Uh, Another benefit of it is it reduces your taxable income. So that because you never made that money, so let's say, you know, $100,000 a year, you're contributing 5,000. Now, your taxable income is 95,000. And then there's other ways to deduct, you know, for those of you who've done your own taxes, you know, there's ways to reduce your taxable income. Um, but this is something to keep in mind. If you max out your 401k, you're reducing your taxable income, and it might be able to drop you down to the next bracket. And so overall, when you're doing your income taxes, you pay less to the government. So something to keep in mind there as well. Many of you may already have known that, but something to think about. PTO. In the private industry, PTO stands for paid time off. You know, if you were like me in the military, you literally never had to worry about this because you had 30 days a year. And even though they kind of screwed you by taking weekend days, I, I never used all my vacation or my my uh, leave. Um, and I still call it leave sometimes uh, at work and people give me like a funny look because they don't know what I'm talking about. But Never had to worry about it. Whenever I wanted to go home, I generally could, unless there was like a military commitment, obviously, like an exercise or deployment or whatnot. But I always had plenty of time to go home. In the private industry, the company is paying you to not be at work. And so it's not as much of a given. Some companies do no pay time off. Like if you're in a contract role, a lot of contracting roles, which is basically you work for a contracting agency and they put you in a contracting role at a particular company. So for example, uh, one of my jobs at my, one of my roles at Capital One is I'm a, uh, I'm a business analyst, but I'm also a product owner. So I am the product owner for a tech team. And so I, I manage the products that they deliver from a technical standpoint. I'm not a coder, but I make sure that from a business standpoint, the technical deliverables they created work. Some of the developers on our tech team are contractors. So they're not employees of Capital One. They're employees of a software developing contract, or software development contract firm that contracts them to Capital One. And companies hire contractors sometimes because the role isn't necessarily going to be long-term or they need a very specific skill that they don't have internally uh, or whatever the case is, they hire these contracting roles instead of full-time employees. A lot of people who are in contract roles don't have any paid time off. So basically, if you're not at work, you're not getting paid. Um, and so if you're in that situation, you know, you just need to understand, you need to factor in two, three weeks a year, you're not going to get paid and understand what, you know, your salary is effectively going to be because it's not going to be the 52 weeks a year. Um, now, if you are not going into a contracting role and you're going to work for a company that's going to give you some sort of paid time off, and I would encourage you to find one because as someone who only had two weeks of vacation for my first 20 months or so out, it blows. To put it bluntly, two weeks is 10 days. So towards the end of the year, my wife and I would plan out the next 12 months. What days can I take off specifically? And that was such a shitty feeling to know that I only had these 10 days to work with. And, you know, I was in the manufacturing industry, which does not take all the federal holidays. So as, you know, as a, as a military member, you know, you got every federal holiday plus your 30 days. In the private industry, the only industries that take off all federal holidays are financial services and usually the defense industry, but it depends on the company that you work for in the defense industry if they take those days or not. Um, but that's it. Pretty much everybody else, if they take the federal holidays, it's by their own choice, but those are the industries that do it at large. Um, and so that's something that you really need to think about. So this manufacturing company I work for, they didn't take all the federal holidays. They took like Christmas, New Year's, Easter, 4th of July, like 
they didn't even take Veterans Day <laughs> for a company that like talked about how supportive they were of veterans. They didn't even take Veterans Day. I think we also got like Memorial Day and maybe Labor Day, and that was it. Like, or not even no, not even Labor Day. Like it was it was pretty shitty. We got like maybe half of the federal holidays, and so that's something to keep in mind. You know, as you're looking at these jobs, is, is at, and you're looking at the offer sheets that you get, is okay. What federal holidays do you guys take off, and how much PTO? I would say at a minimum two weeks, like ten days, bare minimum. You will see how quickly that sucks, but if the company is not willing to give you two weeks off, unless it's the only thing you can get and you're really concerned, like I guess you can take it, but you need to look for a place that gives you more than two weeks off. Um, you want a company that's investing in the person and knows that if you take another week off, you're still going to get the job done, right? And you know that kind of leads me into the next point on PTO. A lot of companies are starting to realize this. They're starting to realize that it's more important to hire good people than it is uh, worry about how much time they take off. And a lot of companies have done studies on this where they they give people unlimited time off and they see how much time do they actually take off. And a lot of these studies have shown that if you hire the right people, they're going to take three or four weeks off a year. So there's no, and some people take less, like maybe two weeks off. Like I think it's like two to four weeks is what the, the average is. But like people, you know, People want to be at work, and if you're hiring the right type of people, they want to be there, they want to contribute, they want to do a good job. If they're taking time off all the time, they're not going to get promoted because they're not there, they're not present, they're not they're not uh, contributing as much as other people. And so a lot of companies are doing unlimited time off. You know, at Capital One, they're pretty liberal with their paid time off, you know, and it depends what team you work on as to how closely they even track it. You know, if you're at work and you're crushing it, a lot of companies, they don't even track it. They're just like, hey, man, you take, you know, put your, put your time off on the team calendar and go do your thing. And that's it. And nobody worries about it. Other companies, they actually track it. But a lot of times it's up to your manager. Like some managers are really meticulous and they want to track it in the system and whatnot. Some managers, you know, they don't care. They're like, yeah, man, see you next week. You know, take your time off, like no worries. And so, you know, when you're talking to these companies, talk about paid time off, find out what it is. I would look for three to four weeks. Um, you know, I have friends who work at Bank of America, they get four weeks off a year. I also have, uh, I talked to some people at Red Hat, which is a open source software company, pretty big company headquartered out of Raleigh, North Carolina. And they recently instituted a policy of four weeks per year, so 20 days, and you have to take those days off. Like you have to take your days off and they kind of force it. And they have periods of time throughout the year where nobody's at work. So around Christmas and New Year's, like they shut down as a company for like two weeks. And you, you know, you could work from home, I guess, but you can't go into the office like, you know, so they're really focused on making sure people get their time off to recharge so that when they're at work, they're fully engaged and they're, they're not, you know, just hating their life because they don't get any time off. So that's something to look for. But just remember on the flip side, like this company is paying you to not work. So that is sort of a difference from the military. You never really thought about it that way. But, you know, bare minimum two weeks, look for three to four. If you accept a shitty PTO, you will hate yourself for doing it later on. So, you know, look for that or at least look for some flexibility, work from home options, stuff like that. BAH is what I was going to cover next. We already kind of talked about it as sort of the transitory topic between location and compensation. Just realize that you are no longer getting any sort of pay that's not taxed. Uh, BAH was sort of the sweet deal. I always knew it wasn't taxed, but again, I, I just didn't really fully grasp that concept until I didn't get it anymore. And so something to consider, look at, how, look, look at your BAH as if it was getting taxed. 
uh, or try to, you know, there's, there's calculators online where you can plug in your pay and your non-taxable income and it'll tell you kind of effectively what you are getting paid, uh, you know, to compare it to a private industry. And so I encourage you to Google that and put in those values and see what your private industry pay would be. And I think you would realize that it's actually a little bit more than you would have thought than you really cognitively thought about because it wasn't taxed. So I won't belabor that point, but something to think about. One other thing that I didn't think about till I got out is clothes. You know, we have all of our military uniforms. Some of us get stipends to cover those. In the private industry, nobody gives you money to buy your clothes, and you got to dress appropriately for work. Fortunately, a lot of industries are getting more relaxed and comfortable with what people wear to work. You don't always have to wear a suit. Uh, but some industries still do that. So some industries, like if you're in sales, some financial services roles wealth management, attorneys, like if you're going to work in in the legal industry, you have to wear a suit every day. And suits are not cheap. You know, we talked uh, talked about it in the dress episode, if you haven't listened to that one, but suits can minimum a couple hundred dollars. And some people spend several thousand dollars. So if you're wearing a suit every day, you need a minimum of what, you know, a cup, like a handful, because you're wearing them every damn day, excuse me. So that's something to consider. If you're going into one of those industries, you're going to spend several th- like several thousand dollars outfitting your wardrobe so that you can wear the right clothes to work. And if you're not, you might be going into a more casual industry. So like I said, when I got out, worked in manufacturing, I wore steel toe boots, jeans, and a collared shirt every work today. Um, I generally had what I needed when I got out. I went and bought a few more uh, like dress shirts just to you know have some more options rather than same, wearing the same shirts Monday through Friday every week. But so I, so I ended up spending probably a couple hundred dollars kind of outfitting my wardrobe there. Now working in Capital One, I mean, I wear jeans uh, or maybe like some casual chinos. I wear sneakers. I wear like Allbirds. And then I wear like a poloed shirt or a sweater, maybe a button-up dress shirt, but it's not even really necessary. Like Capital One's generally pretty casual. Um, Some people who work on the finance side, like in the actual like bank part of the company, they might dress up a little bit more because again, that's more of a traditional financial services type of piece of the company. Um, but in, in credit card team or the division where I work, things are much more casual. And so as long as you look like somewhat professional, it's fine. And people run the gamut. Some people really dress up. I've seen some people at some of the developers uh, at work in flip flops and shorts. Um, they're probably not supposed to be doing that, but Hey, if they're crushing it, like who gives a shit, you know? Um, so just something to think about, like, as you're getting out, depending on what industry you're going into, you may have to pay to get some nice clothes. You may have to pay to get some clothes. You can get beat up. Your clothes are generally on you. Uh, nobody's going to pay for it. So the last thing I want to cover is negotiation. First off, uh, I am by no means a negotiation expert, but to negotiate your, your offer or your salary, you don't have to be an expert. Like there's just some basics I think that can get you through it. Uh, I think it's worth mentioning here. So the first thing is obviously you don't negotiate till you get an offer, but once you get an offer, it it is expected that you're going to negotiate. Everybody does. That's just part of the process. So you need to get over the initial uncomfortable feeling of countering because you know, you get this offer and you think, man, I don't want to lose it. Like I should take it while they're giving it to me. Like they might give it to someone else. Generally, that's not the case. If they are going through the months and months and months of work it took to get all the way to you and then write you an offer, you've got some room to negotiate. Because if you can't come to an agreement with them, they got to start all over. Like, even even if it's a competitive role or something, like, you, you know, they don't, they, they want you. There's a reason they made you the offer. So just remember that when you get that offer, they want you and you can negotiate. When you first get the offer whether it's in person, it's usually via email or over the phone, 
They might uh, email you the offer. Like in my experience, they emailed it to me or no, they called me. They told me what it was and then they emailed it to me and then they said, Hey, let us, please let us know in a week or two or something like that. Don't give them any reactions. Don't accept it on the spot. Don't decline it on the spot. Don't counter on the spot. Just say, okay, hey, thanks for the offer. Definitely would like some time to consider it, talk about it with my family, whatever. Just take it as is. Then if you know anybody on the inside, give them a call if they're if you're comfortable talking about them with money and see what they think. That's what I've always done or tried to do. I think that's worth, because those people know what they did. They know what other people have done. Um, and if they're a veteran, they kind of understand the perspective you're coming from where you just don't really know what the hell you're doing and you need some advice. Negotiating is not like the movies, like you're not sitting across the table in a dimly lit room and passing sticky notes or, you know, envelopes upside down on the table. It's not like that at all. Like it's very professional, but it is expected. If you're going through a headhunter, one of the reasons I don't like them is this process is pretty much rigged against you because the company that is recruiting you, they generally pay everybody the same, like they know exactly what you're worth. Because the headhunting agency has worked with them before, they've hired other people, they all, you're all generally worth the same thing, they're kind of taking a risk on you because you're a veteran, you don't have generally direct industry experience, you don't have a lot of room to get negotiate. What I did is, um, when I got out, you know, I was working for that manufacturing company, they, the offer they gave me basically meant that I would have one week of vacation for my whole first year, and then two weeks at my one year anniversary for the rest of the second year, which is a really confusing way to write it. Which would mean basically that I started in August, I'd have a week for the rest of the year, so kind of a two week per year cadence, but just one week for the rest of the year. And then my next year, I would have no vacation from January 1st all the way till August. And then once I hit my one year anniversary, I'd get two weeks for the rest of the year, which was really shitty. And it was a really weird way to construct it. So my counter was, hey, I want one week for the rest of this year and then two weeks for all of next year. And then they accepted that and they were fine with it. But generally, in those roles, like you really can't negotiate because they pay the same every time and they know what you're worth. And, you know, it's, it's, you can try. Like, I don't think it's offensive at all, but just know that you might not get a lot, get, get anywhere. I definitely think you should negotiate though. And I, I wish I had pushed back more when I first got that first offer, other than just, you know, facilitating the paid time off thing. Um, but again, the headhunters, you know, they, they don't want that offer to slip through either because if, if you get placed there, they get paid. So keep that in mind if you're working with headhunters. Before I get into the specifics, if you go to transitionvetcoach.com and you go to the blog post for this, there's a link in there and it's a link to a YouTube video that is done by a guy by the name of Ramit Sethi. Uh, Ramit has his own website called I will teach you to be rich.com, growthlab.com. He has a lot of online businesses where he uh, he's really really smart with personal finance and in you know managing your wealth and investments. That's kind of how he got his start. And then he does a lot of uh, online courses on like building your online business and your presence and branding and and all this other stuff. He's a really really brilliant guy. He's got a video on there where he walks you through how to do this, how to negotiate. So pause the podcast right now if you can. Go watch that video. Go watch the link. You can just Google, go to YouTube and type in Ramit Sethi, R-A-M-I-T-S-E-T-H-I, salary negotiation. Just Google that or put it in YouTube. You'll find him. It's like an eight-minute video or something like that. But it's a really, really good video. um, And and I definitely highly encourage it. It's the best one I've seen. And they basically walk through a mock interview. And then as they, after they go through the mock interview, then they go back and they talk about like different aspects of it and how to approach it and and how to push and prod and just how to understand the psychology of the negotiation. So I encourage you to watch that. 
Now, again, this podcast is all about actionable advice. So I'm going to give you some basic pointers here on, on how to go about this. Focus on your base Focus on your, your base salary, your pay. That's the most important thing. That's the bacon you're taking home every day. So focus on that first. I would ask for, you know, counter with 10, 15, maybe even 20% more than what they initially offer you. Even if you counter at 20, they may come back with 10. So whatever it is, just I, I would encourage you to counter that 10 to 20% more. Signing bonus, I would ask for a 10 to 20% signing bonus. Um, but that also depends. Like if you know you're going to get your final move, maybe you're not as concerned about the signing bonus. But if, or if you know you're not going to get your move, you're going to be more concerned with it. Remember, it's taxable income for that year. So if it's high, you might be in the next tax bracket for that year. But that's, that's a tangential topic uh, on what we're talking about. So you know, when you're looking at that signing bonus, I would say 10 to 20%. But again, if you're not going to get your final move, uh, you know, and just for those of you who aren't familiar, if you're retiring, you get your final move, no questions asked. If you're separating, you don't always get that. So for example, if you're originally from, let's say you're from Norfolk, Virginia, and you're getting out, in Norfolk, Virginia, but you're taking a job in Seattle. Well, guess what? The military will pay to move you from Norfolk to Norfolk because that's your home of record. That's where you entered service and that's where you're getting out. If you're retiring, I think they pay anywhere in the continental United States. But if you're separating, you're basically getting nothing and you got to get yourself to Seattle. And the company may, you know, that's another thing you can counter with. And we'll get into that is, um, you know, asking for them to cover your move. But some companies will just give you a signing bonus and, and that can cover your move. So a lot of times when people accept jobs in Silicon Valley in the tech space, I mean, they'll get signing bonuses like forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000. But the purpose of that is, hey, we want you, we want, we want to sign you, but here's also a lot of money to help you get out here. And so... That's something to consider. So I would say 10 to 20% as a general rule, but you can definitely go above that if you think the situation warrants it. You need to move coverage, something like that. And then lastly, performance bonus. I would shoot for 20%. Um, you're not always going to get that 20%, right? That that's 20% if you're rock if you're a rock star, but you, you know, if it, you still want some sort of opportunity there, some incentive to perform every year, and performance bonuses are super normal in private industry. So if any of those things are not in your base package, like I would go ahead and ask for them. So when I got my offer from um, Capital One, I got a base salary offer and a performance bonus offer. And so I countered base and performance and asked for a signing bonus. And I won't get into the details of how it shook out, but it's, I'll just say it's worth it. It's worth countering. Uh, you, you know, you'd be surprised what, how flexible companies are and, and they want you. So, uh, I think that's something to go after. The next thing is, you know, moving. I talked about it. Like if you're moving and you know, you're not going to get a move from the military and do not assume if you have not looked into this and you're getting out, you need to look into it. If you're retiring, you're good to go. If you're not retiring and you're separating, you need to look into it because generally, and I, I can go into this real quick, but generally the way it works is they will pay to move you back to wherever you entered service. So either your home of record or if you entered service in a different location, they'll pay to move you back there. So my situation was a little unique. My home of record was Northern Virginia. Okay, and for context, I was getting out of Virginia in Virginia Beach. So I lived in Virginia Beach at the time. I was getting out. My home of record was Northern Virginia. I needed to get to Maryland. So Maryland was a little bit further than Northern Virginia from Virginia Beach. And so I knew that I was going to have to end up paying a little bit of my move which, you know, when the military moves you, it's a couple thousand dollars. So I didn't want to pay it if I didn't, you know, pay that 20% difference that I would have had to pay or whatever it was. So I did some research and I found that the military will pay to move you to 
either your home of record or the place in which you entered active duty. So since I commissioned at the Air Force Academy in Colorado, I actually had the basically the bandwidth for the military to cover a move from Virginia Beach all the way to Colorado Springs, Colorado. Obviously, moving to Maryland was much shorter than that, so my move was covered. For those of you who are enlisted who are listening, generally, your place of entrance to active duty, in the Navy, it's called your PLEAD, place, it's like point, or no, it's PE, I don't, it's like point of entry to active duty or something like that. You can look it up. Every service should be pretty similar. But basically, they'll pay to move you to both of the, your home of record or your place of entry, or point of entry, POE maybe is what it is, but... If you're enlisted, generally your POE is where you actually worked with a recruiter, which most of the time is in your home of record or the same area. Um, it's not Great Lakes if you're in the Navy. It's not you know Lackland for Air Force folks. It's not it's not where you went through boot camp or OCS or OTS or whatever. It's wherever you know you worked with the recruiter. So it's definitely worth looking into. It is in your record. Like you can figure it out with your admin folks. Admin aren't always the best, but this is something you can definitely figure out. But something worth looking into is what is that final move? And if that final move is not going to cover you, you can get the company to cover it. And if I, if I were you, what I would focus on is trying to get the company to cover your move rather than them using the signing bonus to cover your move. And the reason is, is if they cover your move, they just cover it directly. You don't even see that money. Whereas if you get a signing bonus and you get extra signing bonus to cover your move, that's taxable income that you're getting, right? And so now that's bumping you up a tax bracket, even though that money is coming into you and going straight to a moving company. So when you're thinking, that's just another thing to think about as you're negotiating all of this, is if you are if you know you're going to need them to cover the move, go ahead and try to negotiate that as a counter if it's not already offered to you. Some companies offer it, some companies don't. A few things, and then, you know, as you work through that process, if you can't get anywhere or a few other things you want to try, look at things that don't cost them any money. So pay time off. doesn't re, I mean, effectively they're paying you to not work, but it's, 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 um, it's kind of a blind thing, right? They don't, they don't see it. So if your pay time off offer is not good, or you want to get some more, whatever, you can always ask for another week or two there. That's not going to piss anybody off. Some situations you can get like a company car. Like if you work in construction or something like that, you're going to go to job sites a lot. They might give you a truck or something, gas card. Some companies do that where they, you know, if you're on the road a lot, like sales, something like that, they'll just give you a gas card to cover all the gas that you're using, but be creative. Like look at the industry that you're going into, talk to people on the inside, figure out what people counter with, figure out something that a lot of times there's things you can throw in there that that effectively don't really cost anyone anything, but they're benefits to you. And so that's something to consider as you're getting creative with, with your negotiation strategy. But as you counter with all of that, like you can't just say if they offer you 100,000, you're like, no, I want 110. Like you can't do that, right? So you got to come back and give them sort of a reason. Say like, hey, you know, I, I, you know what I would recommend is say like, hey, you're a veteran, and there's some known quantities coming with veterans. They they work hard. They're uh, you know they they go above and beyond. You know there's no issues with like timeliness or anything like that. But what you what I would really harp on is the fact that you're bringing a different and unique and diverse perspective that a normal uh, new hire would not have. And so you're coming up. You're coming from uh, uh, you know a world and an industry, the military, if you will, as, as an industry that has a unique perspective on things that most people in that company aren't going to have. And so I that's what I use when I negotiate is I say, "Hey, I'm coming from with a unique background, the uh, and a diverse background that a lot of people aren't going to have the same perspective as me, and I think that perspective is valuable as we're working towards designing really positive solutions for our customers." And so I think, you know, my perspective is unique and I think it adds a lot of value and I think that's why that, you know, I think this offer is, is more uh, appropriate. Um so don't explain that you're better than everyone else. Like, oh, I'm the best. Like, I know I'm the best. 
everyone, there's always someone better than you. And quite frankly, you probably have little to no relevant industry experience compared to other candidates. And so you don't want to just say you're the best. Um, you want to offer and talk about why you're different and why they should select you. Um, and so be unique, be creative and be, you know, genuine and honest about what you think it is that differentiates you and be specific. Don't be too general about it because that won't really go that far. One thing I would say on negotiating, don't try to negotiate your benefits, 401k, medical coverage, like that stuff is generally already pre-negotiated with the third-party vendor that handles that. Um, So for example, Capital One, Fidelity Investments handles our 401k. There's already a contract there between Capital One and Fidelity. There's really no negotiating power there. Medical coverage is provided by Anthem, Blue Cross, Blue Shield. There's really no negotiation there. Those things, like, they'll kind of make you look stupid if you try to negotiate those, and those just aren't negotiable. So don't waste your time on stuff like that. It may be unique to the company you're going to, but generally those things aren't negotiable. And last thing I'll say, like, you know, wrapping this all up, is talk to veterans on the inside. Um, Blindly message them on LinkedIn. Touch base with them, you'd be surprised how happy veterans will be to talk to you or veteran spouses or anybody that you have some sort of connection to, whether it's you served in the same service, you just both happen to be in the military, maybe their husband or or wife was in the military, maybe they grew up in a military family, somehow get in contact with people on the inside and and talk to them about this and see what is reasonable, what's doable, what's flexible, what's not, um, and that can better position you you as you go through this process. Um, So that's it. That's all wrap it up for today. Uh, Thanks so much for listening. Again, this is the Vet Coach Trends. Transition Tips podcast, and we end every podcast with the same quote, which is a Winston Churchill quote, which is, success is not final, failure is not fatal, it is the courage to continue that counts. As you're going out, you're going to have successes, you're going to have failures, um, but what makes us unique as veterans is that we have the courage to always get through that process, whether it's good or bad, and we never let up, whether we're, we're succeeding or we're failing, we're always pushing hard, we're always pushing through it. Uh, you will get through this transition uh, as long as you work hard, you put in the preparation, you put in the work, you go through the motions, and 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 you, you make an honest effort, you'll get through this, just like every other veteran that has before you. Um, so that's it, I'll sign up for now. Again, this is Pat Bergstresser, Vet Coach Transition Tips Podcast, and we'll catch you guys next time. You've been listening to the Vet Coach Transition Tips Podcast. For more transition tips and content, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and check out transitionvetcoach.com. Thanks so much for your service and all you do. As always, if you have any questions, email Pat directly at pat at transitionvetcoach.com.